Today's episode is sponsored by Tigo. For most of us, indemnity insurance is one of our biggest costs of practice. But when was the last time you took a look at the coverage and compared your premium with others? Many of us are still with the same insurer we joined in med school or intern year. Thousands of doctors have made the switch to Tigo and benefited from their personalised approach to pricing. You will also get an extra two months free in your first year. If you are new to private practice, you might even qualify for four years of discounted premiums. Tigo offers competitive premiums, quality cover and 24-7 support backed by top Medico legal advisors. Get a free quote and discover why thousands of doctors are insured by Tigo by visiting tigo.com.au. Hello listeners and welcome to Deep Breaths, a podcast covering topics related to the part two anaesthetic exam. I'm Dr. Kate McCrossan. And I'm Dr. Kate Steele. And today's episode is Bad Blood Part 2, where we'll continue our discussion about Rotem, specifically its interpretation and some focused case examples. As always, in this podcast, we represent our own views and not those of our employers or ANSCA. So we've already discussed coagulation, the Rotem parameters that we use for interpretation and the different assays. So now let's get on with some more clinically relevant interpretation and talk through some cases. Our method for interpretation is what is recommended on the Rotem product website in their learning modules. See the link in our episode notes as these are well worth working through. We acknowledge though that there are many different steps you can take when interpreting Rotem and it is important to find a way that works best for you in your institution. If you can, we recommend looking at the temograms as we discuss them through the link in our episode notes to the Deranged Physiology site. It's a fantastic site and well worth a look. So the first example we want to discuss is what you'll see in a patient that has a residual heparin effect. Now, when you first get your rotum, start by grossly eyeballing the shape of all of the curves. In this case, the curves all have a nice sausage shape that looks normal, although the intem sausage looks a little thin. Next, we focus on the XTEM and INTEM curves. So for this case, we start with the XTEM, and what we find is that every aspect of the curve and the parameters fall within the normal reference ranges. So we know that the extrinsic pathway is unaffected. Next, we look at the INTEM curve, and what we can see is that there is a prolonged CT value, which tells us that initiation of clotting is impaired within the intrinsic pathway. Now, we know from previous discussions that a prolonged CT can be due to a deficiency of coagulation factors or from the effect of heparin. To review quickly, heparin binds to and potentiates the action of antithrombin 3, a protease inhibitor, which as a result of its increased activity primarily inactivates thrombin, also called activated factor 2, and factor 10A. Antithrombin 3 also inactivates factors 9A and 11A, but to a lesser degree, and factors 7A, 13A, and plasmin to a lesser degree again. So now we can start to understand why the XTEM is relatively uninhibited, but the INTEM is affected. Next, we look at the FibTEM. Now, keeping in mind that this assay activates the extrinsic pathway, which we know from the XTEM result is normal and specifically inhibits the platelet contribution. Now, we see that the amplitude of the temogram or the MCF is within the normal range. So from this, we know that there are no issues with fibrinogen availability or function. And last, we look at the HEPTEM. Now, this test adds heparinase to blood to remove any heparin effect. 
And what we see in the heptem temogram is that the values for CT, CFT, and the amplitude are all improved when compared to those values for the intem and are within the normal reference ranges. Therefore, in this instance, the prolonged clotting time and reduced clot firmness seen on the intem can be attributed to the presence of heparin. Great. So now we're going to power on and discuss what a rotum result looks like in a patient with a fibrinogen deficiency. So looking at all four curves grossly shows that they're all abnormal. Instead of the nice, fat, sausage-shaped graphs seen with normal coagulation, these temograms look more like bullets. Now we start with the X-TEM and in-TEM results. Beginning with the clotting time, we can see that it is prolonged in both the X-TEM and the in-TEM, so this tells us that the ability of the clotting factors to function properly in general is impaired. The CFT values for both assays are also prolonged, so clot propagation is also sluggish, and again, this abnormal result is nonspecific. Next, we look at the amplitude of the temograms, and we can see that the ATEN and the MCF are both slightly lower in amplitude, which suggests that there is an issue with reduced clot firmness and strength. We also know that the main components affecting temogram amplitude are platelets and fibrinogen. So from here, we look at the FibTem. Remember, this assay inhibits the function of platelets and allows us to assess the fibrinogen contribution to clotting. And what we can see is that there is a reduced amplitude and MCF value on the FibTem temogram. So we know from this result that there is an issue with fibrinogen in the form of either a fibrinogen deficiency or a fibrin polymerization disorder. Now, lastly, we look at the aptem curve, remembering that this assay is always compared to the XTEM curve and is used to determine whether hyperfibrinolysis is present. In this case, the XTEM and aptem curves are the same in that neither exhibit any evidence of clot lysis, so hyperfibrinolysis can be excluded. Great work. We're powering through them. So next, we're going to discuss the findings in a patient with thrombocytopenia or poor platelet function. Gross inspection of the shape of the four curves shows them to be very abnormal. Similar to the assays for a patient with a fibrinogen deficiency, these curves are bullet-shaped rather than nice fat sausages. The only curve that appears normal is the FibTem. It's a little pink sausage. Now, starting with the XTEM and INTEM, the clotting time for both assays is normal, so we know that there's no issue with coagulation factors and there's no heparin present. But the CFT for both assays is prolonged, so there's a problem with clot propagation, but this result isn't really specific. Now looking at the A10 and MCF, we know that both curves have a reduced amplitude, so the clot's strength and firmness are reduced. And again, we know that the amplitude is affected by platelets and fibrinogen. To determine which of these is hindering our clotting, we then look at the FibTem curve, which is normal. Remember, FibTem neutralizes the effect of platelets. So this tells us that fibrinogen isn't an issue. There's plenty of it and it's functioning normally. Lastly, a comparison of both the aptem and XTEM curves shows that they are both normal and that there is no evidence of clot lysis. So from this, we know that the likely culprit for our patient's abnormal clotting is either a reduced platelet count or reduced platelet function. Now on to our last specific example, we're going to talk about what we see in the case of hyperfibrinolysis. First and foremost, a scan of the shapes of the four curves tells us there is something very abnormal going on. Instead of the lovely sausage-shaped curves we know and love, three of our four curves look like teardrops. Looking more closely at the XTEM and INTEM, both curves have a normal CT, so there's no deficiency of clotting factors or heparin effect. 
Both curves have a slightly reduced amplitude, which could be due to fibrinogen deficiency, platelet deficiency, or hyperfibrinolysis. But the most significant derangement is that they show a clear degradation of the clot with an abnormal LI30 and ML values and percentages. Looking at the FibTem, we see the same pattern. The initiation of coagulation is normal, but the amplitude and the presence of clot degradation are abnormal. Lastly, we look at the Aptem. Now remember, the Aptem assay activates the extrinsic pathway and contains an antifibrinolytic agent which inhibits fibrinolysis. And what we see with the Aptem is that all of the parameters are normal. The amplitude is normal, which tells us that the clot strength is normal in the presence of an antifibrinolytic and that there is no clot degradation. So this temogram has that lovely fat sausage shape rather than the teardrop pattern of the other three assays. Now this tells us that the reduced clot firmness and clot degradation seen in the XTEM, INTEM and FibTEM are a result of hyperfibrinolysis and can be corrected by adding an antifibrinolytic agent like tranexamic acid. So these examples illustrate what we see in very specific situations, but it's not uncommon for more than one coagulation abnormality to be present in the populations in which we typically use Rotem for blood analysis. We see different pictures of disordered coagulation in different patient populations, and it's important to keep this in mind when using Rotem. In many institutions, we have Rotem interpretation flow diagrams that help us decide on which blood product to give in order to correct a coagulation abnormality. It's also important to assess Rotem data with the flow diagrams relevant to the clinical scenario of your patient. True. So let's start with the example of the trauma patient. Trauma-induced coagulopathy or acute traumatic coagulopathy is an impairment of hemostasis and an activation of fibrinolysis that develops when tissue injury is combined with systemic hypoperfusion. There are overlaps with disseminated intravascular coagulation and often patients with TIC meet the diagnostic criteria for DIC, but there is a suggestion that the underlying mechanism for the two may be slightly different and that TIC does not result from consumption alone. But this is an area of ongoing debate. What we know about the disordered coagulation in these patients is that there is an increase in the activation of protein C in trauma patients. This activated protein C, together with its cofactor protein S, inhibits coagulation by degrading factor 8A and factor 5A, the cofactors in the activation of factor 10 and prothrombin respectively. A multicenter observational study of 165 critically injured trauma patients in the USA found that injury severity and shock were associated with elevated activated protein C levels and a depletion of factor 1 or fibrinogen, 2 or prothrombin, 5, 7, 8, 9, and 10, and the authors concluded that this depletion was driven by the activation of protein C. There is also a consumption of endogenous plasminogen activation inhibitor by activated protein C, and this leads to an uninhibited TPA-mediated conversion of plasminogen to plasmin, which enhances fibrinolytic activity. We know that endothelial dysfunction and degradation of the endothelial glycocalyx can result in the shedding of endogenous heparinoids, which can lead to auto-anticoagulation from increased circulating heparinoids. We also know that platelet dysfunction, even in the presence of a normal platelet count, occurs in many trauma patients. In a prospective study of impedance agrigometry in 101 trauma patients, primary platelet dysfunction, not due to pre-injury aspirin or clopidogrel use, occurred in 46% of patients on admission and 91% of patients at some point during their hospital stay. 
Now, to make matters even more complex, acidosis, hypothermia and the iatrogenic coagulopathy seen with the administration of large volumes of IV fluids in these patients or by unbalanced blood component administration all make the trauma-induced coagulopathy worse. And on top of that, these patients may also develop disseminated intravascular coagulation. So what we're really trying to say is that this process is extremely complex Mm -hmm. and you're likely to see a mixed picture on a rotum result. Now, as we mentioned previously, if you're using a rotum interpretation flow diagram to assist with a trauma, be sure to use the correct one for your patient. Don't accidentally interpret your trauma patient's rotum with the obstetric interpretation flow diagram. On the topic of flow diagrams, these aren't actually standardised state or national interpretation flow diagrams. They're all independently formed by hospitals or health districts. If you've never seen one before, we have a link to an example created for the British NHS Brighton and Sussex University Hospitals. We also recommend you check out the ANSCAR 2017 Blue Book as there are several Rotem articles with example flow diagrams. Like we said earlier, these diagrams are designed to guide blood product choice based on a series of questions about the specific Rotem results. And they can make life easier in that they're simple to follow and give specific guidance on what to give and how much. Now, as a comparison to illustrate the differences in these patients, let's talk about the coagulopathy profile we see in major obstetric hemorrhage. In the early stages of hemorrhage, coagulation studies are often normal, perhaps with a tendency towards hypercoagulability, which is also normal in this population, but may be abnormal when comorbidities like placental abruption, liver disease, intrauterine fetal demise, sepsis, or an amniotic fluid embolism are already present. Over time, the fibrinogen level often falls earlier than other coagulation factors and this drop is believed to occur as a result of direct loss through bleeding, increased fibrinolytic activity and hemodilution from the infusion of intravenous fluids to support blood pressure. In severe hemorrhage, disseminated intravascular coagulation can occur. If you've already listened to our episode about PPH, then you'll note in obstetrics, fibrinogen levels typically increase to 5 to 6 grams per litre at term. By comparison, the normal fibrinogen range for non-obstetric patients is 2 to 4.5 grams per litre. So for major obstetric bleeding in which Rotem is being used to guide the administration of blood products, be sure to use the obstetric patient-specific Rotem interpretation flow diagram. Now, previously, when we discussed the examples of Rotem results for specific coagulopathies, these were the completed results, and typically these take about an hour to run fully. But if you've got an actively bleeding patient before you, it doesn't make sense to wait for an hour for the Rotem assay to be completed before trying to interpret the results. You really want to keep an eye on those temograms as the assays are being performed. And what this means for interpretation is that the steps you take are often a little different. Fast assessment relies heavily on the clotting time and the A10. Now, we previously haven't talked much about the A10, but it is a very reliable predictor of overall clot firmness and strength and can be used as a reliable estimate of the MCF value. Thus, we can use it to target treatment within 15 minutes of an assay commencing during heavy or active bleeding. For the XTEM, InTEM and APTEM, the value of the A10 is predictably 10 millimetres below the amplitude of the MCF. So you can calculate the MCF as the A10 value in millimetres plus 10 millimetres. For the FibTEM, the A10 parameter is predictably 3 millimetres below the amplitude of the MCF. So for this assay, the MCF can be calculated as the A10 value in millimetres plus 3 millimetres. 
The management of active bleeding is a very dynamic process and during its management, it's common to run rotum analysis several times to continue to diagnose the evolving picture of any potential coagulopathy and to determine whether your management is improving the patient's coagulation. As a final thought before we leave you, there are limits to the rotum's ability to analyse blood. Firstly, the rotum assays aren't sensitive to platelet function inhibitors like aspirin, clopidogrel, and they have very poor sensitivity for abziximab. If you have concerns about platelet function, separate platelet analysis assays like the Rotem platelet analysis or the Roche multiplate analysis should be performed, and sadly we don't have time to discuss them here today. Secondly, abnormalities in von Willebrand factor function cannot be determined. And lastly, normal Rotem results cannot exclude the presence or effect of the anticoagulants like denaparoid, pentasaccharides like fondaparinox, low molecular weight heparin, or oral anticoagulants like warfarin. Analysis of the effects of these medications or clinical conditions require additional testing. It's always important to consider these limitations when you're interpreting your Rotem results. Well, that brings us to the end of a fairly massive episode series, but I'm really glad we took the time to review Rotem. I know I find it to be really useful. Yeah, me too. Now, before we leave, Kate, what have you learned this week in anesthesia? So this week I've just learnt the uh, nearly endless variation in our patient population and how different people respond to different types of anesthesia. So we had a young gentleman who occasionally uses a bit of THC and, you know, smoker, you know, reasonably solid young man uh, and had appendicectomy, Mm. pretty standard uh, anesthetic with using, you know, gas for maintenance, Mm. MAC of Mm. 1.1, five milligrams of oxycodone and took forever to wake up. Oh, really? That surprises me. (laughs) Right. And then when he did wake up, he was quite chatty and recovering completely fine, but just Mm -hmm. took forever. And it just reminded me that... Um, we still don't really understand how our, particularly our maintenance agents work. Yeah, and um, everyone's different, right? So yeah. it was just it was just interesting. Yeah, you wouldn't predict that. No, with someone mm. with THC, you'd expect them to be wide awake and glaring at you on mm. maintenance doses that would normally, you know, mm-hmm, like Maca point three. Yeah. But no, he no gas on board. Was still happily sleeping away. Oh, wow, so, wow. So yeah, just a good reminder that you know it's not always predictable, and that we just have to take each patient as an individual while applying what we've learned you know, from generalising. Yeah, good learning point. And you? Well, earlier this week, I was contacted by the duty anaesthetist in the hospital to tell me that the general surgeons were adding a patient with dextrocardia on my Mm. list for the following week. Um, And there was some uncertainty as to whether this patient had Cartagena's syndrome or not. Mm. So it gave me a good opportunity to go and revise Cartagena's syndrome, um, which for those of you who aren't familiar with it, is a type of primary ciliary dyskinesia. And it's basically a a constellation of three main things. So dextrocardia is the big one. They also get bronchiectasis and they also get chronic sinusitis. And frankly, it's one of those things I've actually never anaesthetized someone with cartagonas before. It's in a primary, you know, in a major cardiac center, you do see these patients floating in and out mm, every now and then. Mm. I personally have never taken care of one of these patients before, but um, I came this close because unfortunately the case ended up getting canceled before I got the chance Aww. to do it. So, and I still don't know whether it was a, just a yeah, plain old situs yeah. inversus or whether it was a cartagonous syndrome and I suppose now I'll never know. So I've also learned that you say cartagonous and I t- say cartagenous. Oh, really? <laughs> I actually I don't, know, don't know how it's pronounced. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll have to look that up on Wikipedia when we're done here. <laughs> <laughs> 
Thank you so much for joining us on this epic topic. As always, you can contact us at deepbreathspod at gmail.com with questions or future episode suggestions. Follow us on your favourite podcast platform and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. If you know someone that you think would be a great interviewee or have a topic that you'd like us to cover, please feel free to let us know. And consultants, don't forget to claim CPD for tuning in for this episode. Thanks for listening and we hope you can join us next time on Deep Breaths.